Hi, my name is Katherine Rafferty. Um, I hope that you can see me and everything's going well logistically. Um, but I, uh, like Sherry said, am an assistant teaching professor at Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. Um, so I'm two time zones, uh, I guess, ahead of you, not behind you. Um, and I was invited to speak to you today about a research study that I did with a colleague at the Charlotte Lozier Institute entitled Abortion Changes You, a case study to understand the communicative tensions in women's medication abortion narratives. And so I thought I'd just kind of start by talking about this study um, and then if there's a way or an opportunity to do some sort of uh, Q&A, sorry, I'm just pulling up the study. Um, hopefully that will be possible. Okay. Um, so before I get into the specific nuances of this study, I wanted to touch on two organizations that really helped make this study possible, um, as well as provided the data set for our study. Um, the first is the Charlotte Lozier Institute. I don't know if any of you have heard of this institute, uh, but it's a 501c3 that provides research and education um, to policymakers, pro-life groups about evidence-based uh, evidence-based research on life issues, including abortion, women's health, prenatal diagnoses, perinatal hospice, stem cell research, and healthcare policy. Um, and so I'm one of the over 50 associate scholars who are part of this organization. Um, and it's part of the Susan B. Anthony list. The other organization that I want to um, let you all know about is an organization called Life Perspectives. Um, they are also a 501c3 that provides education, research, and expertise to health professionals and care providers um, by offering support to individuals after reproductive loss. Um, and they're an organization that's based out of San Diego, California. And um, part of this organization is they have two websites uh, where they kind of manage uh, the posting of women's narratives, predominantly women, I should say, although men have posted as well, um, regarding two types of reproductive loss, uh, one of those being abortion and the other one being miscarriage. Um, and so the abortionchangesyou.com is an anonymous website without political affiliation or religious affiliation uh, that was created with the intent of having women post about their experiences and providing this online unsolicited platform where women could just tell their story, talk about um, the relief that maybe they felt after having had the abortion, um, talk about the regret, um, really be able to share what it is that they're feeling uh, without feeling the stigma and the judgment that they oftentimes feel from family, friends, care providers, um, and just others who might cross their paths. Um, and they offer a similar website regarding the topic of miscarriage. Um, that website is miscarriagehurts.com. And it's also an anonymous website where people can go and really try to honor the life of their child that, um, that has passed through miscarriage and really be able to kind of talk about this other stigmatized health issue. And so looking specifically at the research project that we did, um, 
this research came about because uh, Charlotte Lozier had contacted me. Uh, being a communication scholar, I don't specifically study the topic of abortion. Um, my main area of research is looking at children with medically complex conditions and understanding how families navigate that experience. Um, but life issues is something that uh, is really a thread or a theme across my research. Um, and I, I study things from a qualitative communication perspective, and that's what they were kind of looking for. And so um, kind of through talking with them, that's how this research project came to exist. Um, and so through this research, um, some of these statistics might be shocking to you. Some of, some of them might not be so shocking. Uh, but when I first started this project, not being an abortion scholar per se, um, I found these statistics to be quite shocking. Um, the first is that one in four women have reported having had an abortion in their reproductive years. And the second being that medication abortion, um, one in three women have reported having had. Now keep in mind that these are reports that people, uh, that women have made. And so it's likely, it's highly probable um, that the statistics are even higher um, than what's reported because it is such a stigmatized health issue. And so for this particular study, we wanted to focus on the topic of medication abortion. Um, medication abortion meaning that women were taking drugs um, as a way to pass their child and to have an abortion. And in 2000, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved um, my, I'm going to totally botch the, the name of this, but my pristone to be used in combination with misoprostol as a form of medication abortion. And since then, medication abortions have been rising, um, with less than 6% of all abortions in 2001 being medication abortions. And now in 2017, which is still a little bit outdated since it's 2021, 39% of all abortions are medication abortions. Um, and so understanding this growing trend in abortion was something that Charlotte Lozier really wanted to know about. Um, and one of the reasons is because of the uniqueness of this particular type of abortion experience. Um, the first being that there's a lack of medical presence. So oftentimes what happens in these situations is that women will go to a Planned Parenthood or they might go to their OBGYN or some other provider. Uh, they'll typically take one of the pills at the provider's office and then be given the rest of the medication to be taken at home. And that's where the abortion itself transpires. And so they aren't in those situations with the medical provider like they would be in a surgical abortion. The second is the time required for completing the abortion meaning that the time is much longer. Um, it's much more drawn out because part of it's happening in a provider's office. The other part is happening at home as opposed to just going into a facility, having the surgery, and then leaving. Um, and then the third being that because it is all happening at home, there are these personal experiences with pain and bleeding, things that are done in a very private setting without the presence of medical providers or anyone else at times. Because oftentimes in reading these women's stories, they're doing this alone. 
Um, they're talking about no one else being around, or maybe they hear others in the background, but they're sitting in their bathroom, and that's where um, this experience is happening. And so we were interested in two research questions. The first being, what topics are women discussing when sharing their narrative about having had a medication abortion? And the second, what if any sites of struggle characterize women's medication abortion narratives? Now, what I mean by sites of struggle is that the medication or abortion in general is a very stigmatized issue. It's a very politicized issue. I, you know, saying that I, I know you all acknowledge that you recognize that there's a lot of tension that surrounds this issue. And so we wanted to look at how does that tension, how does that struggle become apparent in the words and the language choices that these women select when writing their narratives. And so being a communication scholar, I think about the different theories that might frame the way in which we approach the analysis. And so for this study, we looked at a theory called relational dialectics theory. And uh, when I explain this to my undergraduate students, uh, this theory, I use the analogy of tug of war. This theory is basically looking at tensions that exist in our everyday talk. The idea that you know, we'll be talking about one thing, but then we'll also kind of talk of ourselves out of it and uh, present the other side. Um, oftentimes, uh, because of COVID, the example that I'll give students um, is that, you know, COVID-19 brought about this idea of normalcy, what used to be normal, what once was, um, and things changed a year ago. Um, we had to start wearing masks. Things got shut down for a while um, and are still shut down in certain areas of the country. Um, and so then in our language came this phrase, the new normal. Um, and so that was a way that we tried to kind of rationalize discursively or through talk, through our language choices to make sense of what was happening and what is currently happening in our COVID world today. Um, and so this theory kind of looks at, at those tensions that exist um, to understand where are areas of power or privilege, um, where are these dominant discourses that pervade the way in which we talk, where are these marginalized discourses, and then how do those discourses highlight some of the cultural norms or expectations that plague our everyday talk. And so what we did is a case study where we looked at 98 blog posts posted between May 2008 and September 2018 on the website Abortion Changes You. Um, to highlight back to one of the first slides that I, I presented, this website is um, one of the things that Life Perspectives does as a form of education for people who are struggling with reproductive loss. Um, and we felt that this website was a really good website to analyze these blog posts for several reasons. First being that it's anonymous. Um, so being the fact that 
abortion is such a stigmatized issue um, and oftentimes people don't know how to talk about it or they're uncomfortable talking about it. We felt that something where anonymity was preserved would be a good way to kind of uh, get at the root of what women are truly experiencing and not just some mask or facade that they're putting out um, in order to adhere to some sort of expectation that they might feel. The other thing that we liked about this website is that it's not openly politicized, as well as the author of the website, Michaeline Freeberg, has had an abortion herself. Um, and she shares that on the About Us page for this website. And so we thought that her being open about her own experiences years and years ago with having had an abortion, um, that that would provide this safe space for women to feel like they could freely self-disclose about their own experiences free of judgment. And so women on average would write about 655 words, which is about a, page, a little less than a page and a half single spaced of text. Um, so you can see that women are really descriptive and detailed on this website. Um, they're not just writing, you know, I had a medication abortion, period. Um, but rather, they're explaining their story, they're telling their story, they're using a lot of descriptive language to detail what happened leading up to the decision, what happened during their medication abortion experience, what happened after the medication abortion occurred, and even how they feel at the present moment when they're writing this blog post. And so because we used relational dialectics theory as a framework to guide our analysis, basically you know, highlighting the fact that we wanted to look at tensions and contradictions and how that was evident in women's talk, we used an analysis called contrapuntal analysis. Um, what that means is we read through these different blog posts several times. Uh, we did line-by-line -line coding where we tried to capture and really understand what it is that women are talking about to get at the, the idea of topics, since that's not something that was really out there in the research. And then we also tried to see where in their everyday language are these discourses, are these messages that they maybe hear from society, whether it's from the pro-life camp or the pro-choice camp, or where are messages that they're hearing from their spouse or partner, or from their parents, or from their children, you know, whoever it might be, what are these discourses, what are these other voices kind of telling them, and how is that influencing or shaping the way in which they talk about their own medication abortion experience. And so myself, Tessa Longbonds, who is also a research associate with the Charlotte Lozier Institute and works for that organization, and one other female uh, coder who works for uh, Charlotte Lozier, uh, were the three coders who analyzed these blog posts. It took us probably f about six months um, to get through all 98 blog posts. Um, and we did weekly calls where we talked about themes, uh, where we kind of went back and forth between uh, how we thought things might be coded. And then eventually, when we got to the 54th post, so a little over halfway, 
uh, we felt like we had achieved what's called theoretical saturation. And basically that's a fancy word that means that we weren't seeing anything new in the data, but we felt that we wanted to look at all of the posts. And, and so we read all of them, we analyzed all of them and ultimately selected what we felt were the best exemplar quotes to highlight uh, what we found in our data. So getting to the interesting part, which would be our analysis. So what we found in our data is that depending on what women were talking about in terms of their story, uh, that really highlighted or exposed uh, what contradiction was evident. And so in the very beginning, many women talked about the decision leading up to the choice of having a medication abortion. Um, and so they would talk about several reasons that kind of negated why they could not have a child. Uh, listing things such as financial instability, bad timing, they weren't ready for children, they didn't have a support system to help them, you know, whatever that might look like, um, those were some of the reasons. And there was a phrase that a lot of women used, which was, this is the only best option. And across the 98 blogs that we analyzed, 94%, so most of the blogs uh, included language choices where women said things where they felt like it was their only best option. They had no other option available to them. Um, they felt like they were exhausted. Yet oftentimes they were aware of other alternatives, whether it be adoption or whether it be the fact that they really wanted to keep their child, but they didn't feel like they could for many of the reasons that were listed um, in the bullet points. And so a quote that really highlighted or exposed this tension uh, was from a woman who posted in August of 2017. She said, they all tell you it's your choice in the moment, but you don't feel that it is. Being unable to afford it, unable to tell your loved ones, not having the help or feeling unable to support a child when your partner doesn't want it like you do. All these things push you, blind you to a decision that you don't realize will destroy you. And so in this quote, this woman is really highlighting the fact that she's aware of these messages from the pro-choice movement. You know, it's my choice. But ultimately, through her own experience, she's realizing that she didn't really feel like she had a choice. Um, she felt like she made the choice that she did because of the circumstances that existed at the time of her decision. Um, she used the words, uh, all these things push you and blind you to a decision that you don't realize, which in the end will destroy you. And so when we looked at kind of further along in women's storytelling, their narratives, uh, most of these women would talk in detail. So roughly half of the women in our study talked in detail about their actual medication abortion. Um, they would say things like, I felt her come out, or I was in so much pain on the bathroom floor, 
or the pills made me vomit, lose control of my bowels, sweat, faint, pass out, and go into full labor, or I lay on my bed in the fetal position. Now, these descriptions um, were tied to very kind of tragic narratives, so to speak, um, but there were also some women who just said very candidly, I just popped some pills and got a period, or the actual process was frightening, but it wasn't as bad as I had imagined. Um, so not every single woman's account um, was negative, and that is important to point out in order to honor kind of the stories that were posted and reflected um, in our analysis. But ultimately, as they were recounting the detailed descriptions of having had a medication abortion, there was this tension present between feeling unprepared while also feeling like they had the knowledge and awareness of what it is they were actually doing. And a quote that really highlights this um, is from a woman who posted in January of 2016. She says, I knew to expect blood clotting, but nothing could have prepared me for seeing her body. It was the color of my own skin and was actually starting to look like a person. And so you can see how, you know, this woman has some awareness, some knowledge about what she's doing, what she might anticipate or expect when she gets home. Because again, these medication abortions oftentimes are happening at people's homes in their bathrooms or in their bedrooms. Um, but there were other things that she was completely unaware of. She had no idea what was actually going to happen or how she would actually feel after she had completed the medication abortion. And so there was that tension between, I know what I'm doing, I'm aware of it, but maybe not to the full extent. Then the third tension that we identified within our data was this tension of relief versus regret. And this was evident when women started talking about how they felt after having had the medication abortion. A lot of women use the language, it changed me, which isn't too surprising because the name of the website is Abortion Changes You. So you would think that women would acknowledge some degree of change or something being unique or different. Um, in fact, 83% of the women in the 98 blog posts that we analyze use the word change in some degree. Um, but there were a handful, 17%, uh, that didn't really talk about changes at all in their narrative. When they did talk about changes, women mentioned things such as their, the impact that this had on their mental health or how it changed their relationship with their spouse or their partner. They would share about new perspectives they had regarding abortion in general or future outlooks and what their future might hold. A quote from um, our data set that really showcased this tension was from a woman who posted in April of 2020. She said, at first it all seemed like a weight had been lifted and everything was okay. But then I started to feel really sad and low. And now all I do is think about how many weeks pregnant I would have been 
and what my baby would look like and I miss so much. So here women are acknowledging oftentimes an initial sense of relief after the medication abortion is over, whether that was relief for just having, you know, no longer having to think about being pregnant or maybe feeling like, okay, I did this all in secret, it's done, I can move on. But oftentimes when they started to reflect upon or recount account about how they felt now or what their life was like after the medication abortion, that's when they would use language that included elements of regret. And then finally, looking at this idea of silence. As I said in the very beginning, uh, abortion is a very stigmatized health issue. Um, that's not surprising. It's not something that we tend to openly talk about um, or even do so in a way where we feel comfortable openly talking about this issue. And when it is talked about, oftentimes it's in a very hostile way. Um, it's in a very aggressive way. Uh, it's not coming from a place of really seeking to understand where people are, are at or why they think the way they do. And so because of that, women would talk about this general stigmatizing silence that they felt existed when they tried to openly self-disclose that they had had a medication abortion. And that's why women would say things like, I turned to this website because I needed to tell somebody or I needed to share what had happened in a way where I didn't feel attacked um, or where I didn't feel so alone. And 60% of the 98 blogs that we analyzed included some language that talked about feeling isolated or alienated or alone uh, with having had a medication abortion and 40% didn't really mention it at all. And a quote that highlights this particular tension comes from a woman who posted in October of 2017. She said, I try to talk about it with my family and the baby's dad, but they all tell me it's in the past. And so women, some women were trying to have conversations about it, were trying to open up, self-disclose, talk about their feelings, um, get things off their chest, but they felt like others would just shut them down. Um, they wouldn't be open to, you know, understanding why they were feeling a certain way or how things had changed now that they had had a medication abortion. And so why are these findings significant? Um, how can we use these findings in a way to kind of further our knowledge, awareness, and understanding about this group of women um, who have had medication abortions. Well, first off, um, understanding that these stories, these narratives, um, are situated in a very politically charged um, and in some ways socially hostile environment. Uh, there are these larger discourses coming from both the pro-life and pro-choice movements um, that are really shaping the way that women think about themselves, um, the way that they think about what they've done, the way that they understand 
you know, what's happening with their bodies, what's happening with their future. Um, there, even though it is a very personal and private experience, and even more so now that medication abortions are happening at home instead of at a clinic or someplace else, um, that can create this isolation and this alienation even more so um, than before when women would have surgical abortions where they would actually go somewhere and others would be around, be more present. The second is that these narratives are very complex. Um, hopefully through the examples that I've shared, you see that the language that these women are using show how dynamic and how challenging these decisions are. Um, there wasn't really any of the women in our 98 blog posts who talked about flippantly making a decision to have an abortion. You know, it, it was ripe with tension. Uh, it was ripe with emotion. And that didn't go away after they chose to have the medication abortion. If anything, that made things even more dynamic, more complex, more challenging because they felt like they didn't have an outlet to fully express what they had done or anyone who understood who they were. And by turning to this particular website, it was an opportunity or a way for them to anonymously share what happened um, and how they're impacted by that. And then the third is that these tensions surrounding these struggles that they, these women face are muted. Um, they're not something that is out there in the public square, so to speak. Um, we don't hear about them in the political debates. We don't hear about it in public discourse when people talk about abortion. You know, it's either I'm on this side of the fence and I'm pro-choice or I'm on this side of the fence and I'm pro-life and here's why. Um, but there's... There's not really an awareness, I think, of, of these tensions, of these challenges, um, particularly for women who have had abortions um, and medication abortions, since with these uh, types of abortions, it is such a personal and private experience. And sometimes um, these women aren't seeing any provider. You know, I, I was surprised to learn as I was doing this study how some of these women are just Googling and finding these medications in very um, private ways, private platforms, um, looking for them on the internet, getting them from other, getting pills from other people and kind of doing it themselves without any sort of medical guidance. Um, and so they're even more alone and isolated with these tensions because there isn't anyone else to dialogue with, talk about with, understand what they're going through. And so being aware of these discourses and the fact that they shape women's medication abortion narratives, um, it shapes the way that they think about themselves, the way that they think about the baby that they lost, um, that they, that passed, um, the way that they think about their life after the fact. Um, some of these women had ch other children at home um, and talked about their other children being around as they're going through this medication abortion, um, but would use the, the reasons such as, I just don't have the money or the time or the energy or the support to have another child. Um, so it's not just these women who are single and young and um, don't have 
you know, are not married. Um, it's all different types of women, which I think adds to the complexity of this very stigmatized health issue. So I just want to thank you for your time. Um, I want to thank you for listening to this research and thank Sherry for allowing me to participate in your conference. Um, hopefully you found this talk to be um, helpful and to make you more aware of um, a growing public health issue that isn't really talked about um, and more aware from the women who have had medication abortions. I really wanted to, uh, through this study, to honor their experiences, um, to expose their realities um, and to use their voices. And that's why I do qualitative research because I find that that type research really allows the voices of other people to be heard um, and to be out there to be used as evidence to hopefully, in this case, uh, guide legislation that truly does seek to help women um, and children who find themselves in unplanned pregnancies. All right, sorry about that. I didn't mean to blast the whole world. Um, can Catherine hear me or not? She can. All right, do you, she's graciously agreed to do a Q&A time. Isn't that wonderful? So if you guys want to get on the Slido app and um, submit your questions, we can go ahead and do that. I, I didn't realize she was going to be willing to do that, but it's wonderful. Um, so Catherine, I have a question while we're um, waiting, you know, for some of the others to come in. You had mentioned that the, there's a number of, of women who are getting resources or they're able to access the medications from outside resources without what, what it appears to me any sort of support. Um, they're truly isolated. They're truly alone. Do you, is there a possibility that, that that would then skew the figures that you showed initially, the one in four and the one in three, such that actually there are maybe one in two? Or I mean, I don't know it. You obviously can't state um, specifically what that might be. But can you address that, please? Yeah, I mean, like I said at the beginning, these statistics that we have, they come from what I would consider more pro-choice uh, avenues. Um, so these, the second um, statistic comes from a researcher who's affiliated with the Guttmacher Institute, which is kind of the research arm of Planned Parenthood. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of what we have in terms of research out there um, are statistics that are reported by organizations such as Planned Parenthood. Um, or the research arms that support Planned Parenthood. So it is very likely that uh, the numbers are much greater than what is reflected in the research because there are unreported cases. Um, and so if somebody is not going to any sort of clinic, seeing any sort of provider, then that individual is not going to be included in the statistic. Okay, thank you. The next question, how many women were aware of the trauma involved in the process? And the, the question doesn't indicate like 
prior to the process or I mean specifically so in a generalized fashion in terms of trauma I mean out of the 98 blog posts that we analyzed we we didn't really look at okay these people were aware and these people weren't um, we more so did kind of this cr chronological analysis of you know they're talking about a decision they're talking about actually having this medication abortion then they're talking about the aftermath of that um, and so what's happening in these three periods so to speak of their story uh, so we don't have any data any analysis to kind of talk about the awareness but I, I think that one of the things that our study does expose is the fact that there are these tensions there are these struggles that women are kind of saying displaying in their everyday talk when talking about their story with having had a medication abortion mm -hmm. um, so there are sometimes aware that it might be traumatic um, other times they're not aware oftentimes especially when they when women would talk about the medication abortion process itself um, they would expose some degree of awareness while also you know finding out new things when actually going through the medication abortion themselves um, i'll share just three other quotes specific to that tension of feeling unprepared versus knowledgeable to hopefully um, answer that question a bit more fully. Uh, one woman said in, what is it, uh, October of 2009, she said, they lied to me and said they would give me some pills that would make it just like a late period with a little cramping. The pain of the contractions was so intense, I felt like my intestines were pulled out slowly. I collapsed screaming on my bathroom floor, sweat, tears, blood, vomit all over me. Another woman said in September of 2017, they told me if you by chance are in pain, you can take these pain relievers. If by chance that sounded like the process would be easy and not so painful. Well, no, that was not the case. Within 30 minutes, I felt bad cramping. It just kept getting worse and worse. I was crying and moaning from the pain. I literally thought I was dying. And so when women would say they, you know, they wouldn't say who they was, um, but we could infer that that was probably whoever the provider was that was giving them these pills, whether that's a doctor, a nurse, someone at Planned Parenthood. Um, so there's this awareness that there's going to be some degree of trauma, some difficulty, some challenges, but I think it far out, um, far exceeded uh, what many of these women expected or anticipated. And oftentimes it wasn't just physical pain, it was the emotional pain as well. Mm -hmm. You know, there was often this initial relief of, phew, you know, I'm no longer pregnant, I can not have to worry about that anymore. But then down the road, women would realize that there was this loss that they felt. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that loss was because of a lack of, you know, openness in terms of the grief that they experienced. Mm -hmm. And so that's when the regret would start to creep in. And then oftentimes they would share that that's why they chose to write this narrative on the Abortion Changes You website. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
as their outlet. Um, thank you. Next question. What are your plans to make use of your research? So a lot of the main plans is actually something that Charlotte Lozier is doing. Um, so they are based in Arlington, Virginia, um, and they do a lot of work with educating legislators on issues like this. Um, so I know that some of the people who work for Charlotte Lozier, such as Tessa Longbonds, who is my co-author, they are actually on the front lines trying to make sure that legislators are aware that this research exists um, and bringing to light the voices of these women that we showcase in this particular research article. Um, the other way that I've tried to do it is just through presentations like this um, and agreeing to present on things that I know are very politically charged and challenging. And I would say not always the um, popular thing to present on, especially being an academic um, at a very liberal institution. Um, but yet, I think it's important um, to have conversations about issues such as this. Um, I am a mother with four children. Um, I understand that uh, if I don't talk about this, um, if I don't educate people about this, then they're not going to know. Just like I didn't know to the full extent until I actually did this research study. Um, so I hope by you know, talking to people about this, making people aware of this, it will hopefully open up the opportunity for people to dialogue um, and to have conversations about this tough issue and not just, I'm right, you're wrong, um, but really get at the heart of the issue. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you. Next question, was this research study published in medical journals and how can this make it to like OBGYN offices? <laughs> um, so it's published in a journal called Health Communication. So it is a peer reviewed academic journal just like I guess probably the most popular one that people are aware of is JAMA, uh, Journal of American Medical Association. Um, so HealthCom is not as well known as uh, that journal or you know other journals, but it is a highly regarded journal. Um, it's a journal that's read by both academics and practitioners. So hopefully OBGYNs are accessing this research if they are staying on top of research. Um, if they're not, um, I know that Charlotte Lozier has some OBGYNs who uh, are affiliated as associate scholars. They've shared this research study with them. Um, and so hopefully they're able to kind of work through that channel. I am not a medical professional, um, so I don't have that uh, in, so to speak, with that crowd. Um, but I do try uh, with the people that I, the paths that I cross with others to share this research. And I hope that others will do the same. You know, mm -hmm. if they're aware of this mm -hmm. study, if they know that this exists, um, hopefully they'll bridge that conversation with the medical providers that they encounter mm -hmm. and encourage them to at least read the study. Mm -hmm. So am I understanding that you're saying like even we can we could share the information with our provider? Yeah, okay. it's, a, it's an academic, it's a published academic study. Um, like I said, through the journal Health Communication, I'd be happy to send Cherry uh, the link to the article, um, and you could print it off, read it, share it with friends, 
um, share it with medical providers. Really, that's how research gets in the hands of those who mm -hmm. can, you know, hopefully benefit from its value. Mm -hmm. That's why I do applied research, because I want it to have a positive impact on people, not just have some philosophical debate with my colleagues. Yeah, yeah, okay. No, I'd appreciate that link. Thank you. Okay, next question, I'm, and, and I'm asking you this because on our slider they can like it and it moves to the top. So this one has several likes. I don't know that it's necessarily because the, it sounds more medical professional, but I'll ask anyway. How legally regulated is chemical abortion? Are there regulations at all, or what is there, or is what is there easily overlooked? So that is outside my pay grade. I don't know how heavily regulated it is in terms of policy. Um, to answer that question, I can send a link to the Charlotte Lozier website. I do know that they constantly are posting different things about topics such as this. Um, and they have associate scholars who work for that organization, and that's that's kind of their job. In addition to keeping evidence-based research um, at the forefront, they're also the ones who are trying to influence policy and meet with legislators. So I think you could probably answer that question by going to that website. So I can share that with you after this uh, presentation as well. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Um, do you plan any sort to do any follow-up studies of some sort? I do at this time. Um, there's not like one specifically one in the pipeline. Uh, my research, like I said, tends to be with uh, pediatric palliative care programs and understanding families' experiences. So I've got several studies um, that are in the different phases of you know, publication or under review or data collection. Um, but specifically on this topic, there's nothing that's in the pipeline yet. Um, that's not to say that there won't be something in the future, just things like this take time in terms of determining what's the, you know, next, next best step. Um, and this was just published in June of 2020. So trying to kind of see, see where things go from there. Okay, okay, wonderful. Another question, this may also be outside your purview. Are abortion statistics skewed now due to the fact medication abortions are occurring? In other words, I hear abortions are decreasing, but is that true due to the medicated abortions? So that's something we talk about in the literature review, where abortions in terms of surgical abortions and you know the brick and mortar Planned Parenthoods, those are on the decline, but medication abortions are on the rise. Okay. Um, and so that is really the way in which women nowadays are choosing to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to pull up, uh, there's a statistic that we cite at the end of our study, um, which says, so it was a national study that was done in 2019 that looked at women's support for or interest in medication abortion. And they found that half of US women are supportive of and nearly one third are interested in medication abortion. Um, and there's lots of reasons for this. Some of it has to do with the fact that um, you don't have to have surgery or deal with the effects of having had surgery. 
Um, other reasons is that it is a more private experience. And so if you're trying to hide something or be more secretive about it, um, that is certainly a reason that's influencing women's decision. And the third being that it really is marketed as, well, it's just a pill. It's just something that you take. Um, you know, you'll have some sort of physical pain, but, you know, that will pass. And so those messages, those discourses really are shaping and influencing the decisions that these women are making. And then through looking at their narratives, granted there were only 98 narratives that we looked at, but it was over a decade um, of time of various women from, you know, who knows where, posting their stories and sharing that, you know, they oftentimes meaning medical providers, you know, told them something, but it wasn't in the full truth mm -hmm. of what they actually experienced, mm -hmm. whether that's during the medication abortion itself or after the medication abortion happened. And now that they are in this postpartum period, you know, the emotions that they're experiencing, the grief that they're experiencing, the social isolation, alienation, you know, none of that are messages that women felt were evident or discussed or present as they were choosing to make this decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. In your research, were there any accounts from the women about men in their lives who did not want the abortion? Yes. Um, there were several accounts. Um, we didn't look at a specific number, um, but we did find several instances where women talked about other people, particularly men, um, and oftentimes they would note either a spouse or partner or a father who did not want them to have the child. And so ultimately, when it came to that decision um, and feeling like, well, this is the only, only option, you know, even though there's this other alternative of keeping the child and that's what I really want to do, they felt like um, they couldn't because they didn't have the support of their husband or they didn't have the support of their father. Um, and I can read, just pulling it up, um, two quotes that really highlight that. Um, one said, actually three. Uh, so the first was from, uh, uh, sorry, the first is from October of 2017. Uh, the woman writes, I always uh, leaned more towards keeping the baby, but my boyfriend leaned more towards abortion. I knew I could have the baby, but it would be difficult. We both work jobs that barely pay over minimum wage, and we both were scared to grow up and care for a child. Another woman wrote in July of 2012, I remember my husband telling me, well, don't expect me to be too happy with the idea of having it if you decide to keep it. I won't be too loving. That was a knife through my heart, and I made the tough decision to go through with the medication abortion. Wow. Yeah. And then in 2018, a woman says, but my father, on the other hand, was a different story. He's an old school Puerto Rican who told me that I had to leave if I kept the baby. I had two weeks to get an abortion or else he would disown me forever. Wow. So, yes, um, when it came to the decision and that tension between only choice versus other alternatives, oftentimes the only choice 
was driven by messages from their husband, their boyfriend, their father, um, or other people in their life. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, did any women mention any way the church maybe had influenced them, supported them later on? Did you see any ways that the church can support these women better? So in terms of specifically talking about the church, um, there wasn't a lot of mention about any sort of faith or spiritual life um, or organizations out there where they felt like they could be accepted. Um, I think that women over time did in their stories um, feel like, you know, there were resources in place. There just wasn't that specific reference to, you know, a church or a religious organization or, or anything like that. And I think part of that might be because the site that, that we selected is not a, a religious site per se, um, but we felt like the site that we selected was very appropriate for the reasons that I kind of outlined before. The fact that it wasn't specifically looking at, you know, one type of person or one person who aligned in a certain way. Um, the existence of this website came about because a woman had an abortion herself. She did not have a medication abortion. She had a surgical abortion years and years ago and felt like she had no one to turn to. And so she wanted to create this website as a way to create a sense of community for people who found themselves in a similar situation as her. Um, in terms of what the, the church could do in the future, um, I think one of the things is more listening, less talking. Um, allowing mm -hmm. women to share their story, mm -hmm. um, to understand, you know, the places that they find themselves when they make this decision, um, knowing that maybe they didn't want this decision or this choice, but they had to carry it out because they felt like it was their only option. Um, someone said to me once that God gave us two ears and one mouth. Um, but oftentimes we utilize our lives in ways where we think we have two mouths and one ear. Um, and so I think that that is a very humbling reminder that listening and coming to the conversation from a point of trying to understand, seeking to understand first, is probably one of the, the best places to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably in a lot of situations in life, we could seek to understand first, right? Um, next question, was there any language of blame? And if so, where did women assign blame? Yeah, um, there was some language around blame. Um, I'm just looking at one thing on the study right here. I think a lot of times when women use the word blame, they talked about it in the third element of their medication abortion narrative, which was their identity after having the medication abortion. So that tension of relief versus regret. Uh, when women would talk about blame, they oftentimes would blame themselves hmm. um, since they felt like I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who, uh, 
made the decision, who took the pills, you know, it was my act. Um, there was a woman who, whose story I just won't forget. She talked about um, how she felt like she was such a horrible person. And she actually used the word monster in mm -hmm. her story as she was recounting the way that she felt now that she's had this medication abortion. Um, and so some women really did feel empty. They didn't, they hated themselves for having done this. Um, they felt like God hated them. Mm -hmm. um, that was a phrase that we saw a few times in different women's stories and accounts. So I think blame was really something where they felt like they were the ones to blame. Mm -hmm. They were culpable for having made this decision, even though they would say that their husband or their spouse or their, you know, somebody else drove them to this decision. Um, they blame themselves for having done it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. And we have a couple of questions that are very high, but they appear to me to be surrounded more by medical um, sorts of issues. I'll read them, but um, I, what it's what is the medical risk to women going through medical abortion? Is there a percentage of death or other physical damage to reproductive organs? So those specific nuances, I do not have um, the insight on. I do know that there is um, there are risks to a medication abortion, just like there's risks, side effects associated mm -hmm. with any sort of medication. Um, one of the primary risks has to do with bleeding um, and just having excessive bleeding. And oftentimes women who have a medication abortion, what they're told is if this is something you experience, go to the emergency room, which I think is, is just awful because um, an emergency room doctor, it's, it's not their job. They're not, they're not your ongoing provider. They're not the person who has your whole health history. Mm. You know, they're there to try to basically fix whatever the emergency is. Um, and so uh, I think that's such a horrible thing to tell a woman is, well, just go to the emergency room, they'll fix, you know, mm. the issue and then you can move on. Um, because I think it, what these stories show is that it's a very complex situation that does not just include one's physical health, but also their spiritual health, their mental health, their emotional health, you know, all different areas um, that ultimately comprise who they are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, another one, what are doctors legally required to prepare mothers for. I feel as though abortions are not explained well enough, and isn't this an injustice? I would agree. <laughs> um, I think that part of it just has to do with, and th this is my own opinion, but part of it just has to do with, you know, some providers trying to do what they feel is in the best interest of their patient. Um, and so if their patient is coming to them, even if they're not in the right state of mind because they're very emotional um, with having found out that they have this unplanned pregnancy, you know, they're just trying to address the immediate concern and not thinking about the long-term ramifications. Um, and so I think oftentimes, even if providers want to do what's best 
Um, they might feel like their hands are tied or they might feel like, well, this is what my patient wants and hmm. I want to, you know, honor what they, what they want. Um, and then I think there just isn't a lot of education um, in terms of other alternatives besides, you know, the pill and abortion and some of these things that um, a lot of OBGYNs in particular, you know, tend to only think very narrow-mindedly one way and not consider, you know, the other side um, of health or just the complexity of an issue. Thank you. Okay, last question. Is there any data about the response of medical providers to the women after the medication abortion? So we did not see any verbiage about medical providers following up with them after the fact. That wasn't a part of their story. Um, when they would talk about medical providers, they tended to talk about them either in the decision part of their narrative or in the medication abortion process itself. Um, when they would talk about their identity afterwards or just the general stigmatizing silence, that's when they started to talk more about family and friends and people that are a part of their immediate social network. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, there is one more question. I already said one more. <laughs> one more, really, this time. Um, it's, it's a, re, it's a, they've indicated rephrase of my previous question. Were there any stories of men who did not want the woman to abort, but she did anyway? In the narratives that we analyzed, no. Um, that doesn't mean that that didn't exist in the 98. You know, one of the things to keep in mind is that we analyzed what we were given. And what we were given were these unsolicited accounts of women who said that they have had a medication abortion. So it is their story. It is what they choose and decide to self-disclose. Um, and that's what we could base off of. And so when we present, or when I presented graphs earlier and I said things like, well, 60%, you know, said this or 98% said this, you know, that doesn't mean that the other 40% or 2% didn't um, experience that or didn't have that tension. It just means that it wasn't a part of the language choices that they made when sharing their story. Mm -hmm. um, and so they could have felt a particular way or they could have been in a situation um, in regards to this question where the husband or the father wanted to keep the child but they did not and that's why they made this choice um, but that was not a part of of the story in terms of the 98 posts that we analyzed. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I thank you. I thank you for the time of Q&A. Um, and for your efforts and putting this together and for your research as well. So it's an honor and thank you for your time today, Catherine. Thank you, Sherry, and thank you to everyone. I, like I said, I, I hope you found this helpful and 
Um, when I log off here in just a minute, I will send over the link to the Charlotte Lozier Institute so you can pass that on to others, which has lots of, of great evidence-based research regarding abortion and other life issues, as I mentioned at the beginning of my talk. And then I'll also include a copy of the PDF of our article and feel free to share it wide. Um, like I said, applied research only gets applied if the people that read it share it with others. So I encourage you to share it with other people um, and to help get this research out there um, in the hands of people that can really, you know, do good with it. All right, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you. Have a great day, everyone. All right, bye-bye.